Our second lesson is taken from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 6. Let me begin reading at verse 1. Now it came about on a certain Sabbath he was passing through some grain fields and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of wheat, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answering them said, Have you not even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone, and gave it to his companions? And he was saying to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And it came about on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and was teaching. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. But he knew what they were thinking. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and come forward. And he arose and came forward. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to him, Stretch out your hand. And he did so and his hand was completely restored. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Amen. May God bless to our understanding this reading from his word. We have for some time been studying through the gospel according to Luke for the benefit of those of you who are visiting it has fascinated me that uh, in this study that by actual word count, more of the New Testament is written by the beloved physician Luke than by any other writer, more even than by his great friend, the Apostle Paul. Luke is the companion of Paul, and he writes his two letters. The Gospel according to Luke and the Acts. They are written to a friend whom he calls Theophilus. There's always been a discussion as to whether Theophilus were a real person. I have said that I am of the opinion that Theophilus was a real person to whom Luke was writing because he uses the term most excellent Theophilus. And I can remember back in the times when I used to visit Washington that you always referred to an ambassador as his excellency. And I think it must have been a term here that was proper and Luke was using it for a real person. Now, Luke in his prologue says some things that you ought to know about when we go back and refresh ourselves as to what transpires in his record. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of those things which have been accomplished amongst us, just as they were delivered to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. 
it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the truth concerning the things of which you have been informed. Now then, Luke begins to unfold his witness to Jesus Christ by the events that the Holy Spirit leads him to put forward for us. He will talk in detail about the witness of John the Baptist and give us more information about John the Baptist than any of the other gospel writers. He will tell us of the witness of that voice that came from heaven when John baptized Jesus, the voice that said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. He will tell us about the witness of the devil when Jesus had gone into the wilderness and was tempted of the devil. And a negative witness is born to him there. The devil does not doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows he is the Son of God. And the very things that he puts to him in his questions and in his temptations indicates that. It's often that way. It's interesting that people who curse and swear often will take the name of Jesus Christ. And psychologically, they are bearing a negative witness to the power and the greatness of Jesus Christ. They cannot think of a holier, bigger name, and so they take it. And so the Lord turns even that negative thing into a witness to himself. The witness of the Old Testament scriptures are there because we read of the incident when Jesus goes into his hometown synagogue in Nazareth where he had worked as a carpenter and where the scroll of Isaiah is delivered to him and he reads to them from the 58th and the 61st chapter of Isaiah and he tells them that today this scripture is fulfilled in your ears, that the Old Testament is bearing testimony to him. And at first they were quite pleased with this, until he began to make the application that it was not to be a provincial messiahship, that it was not to be a tribal, racial sort of thing that would just include his family and his friends at Nazareth that special connections and special privileges would not be granted, but that it would extend to the whole wide world. And he used illustrations about Syrians and Lebanese, which infuriated the congregation to the point that they wished to take him out of the synagogue and cast him off uh, a, a cliff. John Wesley used to say that the sermon really wasn't any good unless it made someone angry. And uh, there may be some truth to that. Uh, someone asked him one time how many people he took into a church where he had preached, and he said he didn't take in any, but he did let out a great many. Uh, <laughs> they were put out of the church. Wesley was quite a little man and a great preacher of the gospel. Uh, there were the witness of the demons crying out to Jesus. They knew who he was. And then there was the witness of his healing power. You remember he healed Peter's mother-in-law? Uh, she had a high fever. Luke is a physician, and he is the one who tells us that the fever was high. 
He is the one who tells us when a leper is healed that he was full of leprosy. Uh, he gives us a little detail about the man we talked about last week uh, who was let down through the roof. We had to go away last week having thought about that. And the great preacher has said that, and I've often wished that you could have some kind of picture of that. That was an expensive Roman tiled roof. And there in that nice house in Capernaum, where this man had had part of his roof torn up and the tiles tumbled down on some of the people. And then this man was let down by four of his friends and was healed by Jesus. And then you remember that Jesus forgave him of his sins. And the scribes and the Pharisees who were there, the delegation that had come 80 miles from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus, these inquisitors, they were horrified that Jesus would take upon himself the matter of forgiving sins, but this is a self-disclosure of who he is, the Messiah, who will forgive sins and will bear our sins in his own body on the tree, and that they might know that he is who he is claiming to be and demonstrating himself to be. He said to that paralyzed man uh, to take up his bed and walk. And the man took it up joyfully and went out of that place carrying that old mattress or stretcher or whatever it was with him as a testimony to the fact that he had been healed. What a great thing that was for him. And someone has said that after all the crowd had gone away, sometimes when church is over and I come back through the chapel and maybe we've had a great service that day and the Lord has really been here and you felt his presence in an unusual way and he's worked in someone's heart and you can just sense it and feel it. I wonder if that man who owned the house when everyone had left and he had said, thank you for coming, I'm glad you were here today and wasn't this a wonderful experience to have Jesus teaching and to see this man healed and then he cleaned up the tiles and wound up the rope and then he looked up at that hole in the roof could see light, the cloud, blue sky. And he wondered a little bit about how he's going to fix the roof at first. Then he thought, boy, that roof, that hole is really nice. It means that God has really done something big here today. I'd kind of like to name a church, the Hole in the Roof Presbyterian Church. <laughs> I'm always thinking up names for churches. <laughs> uh, that's a good idea. Let them down in there. Get them in the church, even if you have to tear the roof up. Drop a few tiles on somebody's head. Wake them up. Make them know Jesus is there and that his healing power is present. That man must have had a great experience that day through what had taken place. And yet there are these enemies that now begin to show themselves against Jesus. And so he has to bring himself into direct conflict with them. 
And that's what brings us into the sixth chapter today. In this sixth chapter, on the Sabbath day, his, his disciples are walking through what the King James Version of the Bible calls cornfields. Actually, uh, I don't think corn was discovered until Columbus came to the United States, to, or to America, we won the United States. But uh, corn is something that, according to that Mazola ad, the Indians knew about uh, over here. Uh, anyway, this was wheat, and there were heads of wheat, and they were rubbing the, plucking the heads off of the ripe wheat and rubbing it in their hands and eating the grains of wheat. I've done that out in West Texas where we grow wheat. It doesn't taste too good, but... If you're hungry enough, you'll eat it. And uh, so they were eating it. And the Jews, these Pharisees, uh, the Pharisee party had a lot of good things about it. But they had become so, uh, so terribly oriented toward their, not just the law, the Torah, but the traditions, the oral traditions, mind you, the things which they had added to the law, that they had made the Sabbath a great burden. And so they speak to Jesus. It came to pass on a certain Sabbath that he was passing through some grain fields and his disciples were picking and eating the heads of wheat, rubbing them in their hands. You see, uh, picking the wheat would be regarded as labor. Rubbing them in their hands would be regarded as thrashing the wheat. Eating them would be regarded as having eaten food prepared on the Sabbath. They had all kind of little ways of figuring these things out. But some of the Pharisees said, Why do you do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, now they hadn't done what was not lawful on the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy, I think it's about the 23rd chapter, they're told that they can do this. Uh, this is their oral tradition, which they've added to what scripture has and the added ingredient is what always gets you in trouble that's why the reformation came when martin luther declared the reformation you get added ingredients in toothpaste and in uh gasoline or something but not you don't add to the gospel uh so they had added to god's word and uh, Jesus is going to show them that he is Lord of the Sabbath, that he is bigger than the Torah, that he is bigger than their oral tradition. Jesus answering them said, Have you never even read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? Now they loved David. How he entered the house of God and he took and ate the consecrated bread which is not lawful for any to eat except the priests alone. And he gave it to his companions to eat. The common thing here was hunger. The disciples were hungry, so they ate the wheat out in the field. David was hungry, and his soldiers were hungry with him, so they ate this consecrated bread. And I'm sure that uh, these Galilean peasants, who were kind of country people, I guess that's why I like them so much, they must have slapped their thighs and really laughed. They thought, boy, he got them on that. Uh, and then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He is Lord of the Sabbath. He wants us to know that. He is Lord of the Sabbath. 
Now we sang a while ago, Arlen sang that beautiful song, O Day of Rest and Gladness. That's a blessed uh, song that has to do with the worship on the Lord's Day. It ought to be a day of rest and gladness. It ought to be a balm to our souls. It ought to be a day filled with deeds of love and mercy. And so that's what it's meant for us to understand. There are two extremes that can be gone to here. Uh, There are people uh, at this time who wouldn't eat an egg that had been laid on the Sabbath because the hen would have labored in producing the egg, and that would mean working on the Sabbath, so that egg would not be eaten. And for the uninitiated, it was a little hard to tell which was a Sabbath-laid egg and which was not a Sabbath-laid egg. And so there were all kinds of little problems. And Jesus saw this accretion of, of barnacles on, on what God's law really said, and so he explained to them that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then another Sabbath incident occurred. It came about on another Sabbath that he entered the synagogue and was teaching. The synagogue, by the way, is a great thing because they're teaching, and it would be good if we brought our Bibles and learned by uh, studying through them systematically like we're trying to go through Luke. Uh, the, the synagogue, the place where they gathered together and they learned. And Jesus was teaching. It was a Sabbath day. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. Now there is a book which never made it into the New Testament, but it's a very ancient book cited by Jerome. Uh, I think it's called the Gospel of the Hebrews, that says that this uh, uh, has some old tradition about this man being a plasterer or a brick mason. And he has a withered hand. Now this would be a terrible experience. He was a bricklayer, and yet he can't make a living now because his hand is, is withered. It's shriveled up. Perhaps he'd had a stroke, and it was paralyzed, and he couldn't use it. The indication there is that it was not something he was born with. This was in the days before uh, the great society, and before welfare, and social security, and the dole. And uh, he didn't have any insurance. And so he... He could have been a very bitter person, and yet he was not. He came to church. He could have reasoned that God had been very unfair to him to take away his way to make a living and his hand being withered this way. But he was in the synagogue. I think he must have come there to the old familiar place where he had worshipped as a boy. And so he was present. And the scribes and the Pharisees were watching Jesus closely, we're told, to see if he would heal this man on the Sabbath in order that they might find reason to accuse him. Jesus knew this. He knew what they were thinking, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Arise and come forward, and he arose and came forward. And Jesus said to to them, to these learned people who were the specialists in the law, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath day to do good 
or to do evil, to save a life or to destroy it? He put the question to them. And Mark tells us that when he looked around at them, there was anger in Jesus. He looked around at them angrily because they were more concerned about their oral tradition than they were about that poor man. And you can be angry in a right cause. These people were meticulous about these details of ceremonial law. So meticulous that when they nailed Jesus on the cross, it was Passover and they had to go through certain baths and ablutions. And they went through all of that business and then made a little detour to get him nailed on a cross on the night in which he was betrayed and the night in which they yelled for his death. And Jesus knew them well. He knew them as those who would devour widows' houses, who would steal from other people, and yet keep this ceremonial law right down to the detail. And for a pretense, make long prayers in public, and do other things, and talk about religion, or about God, or about the law. And yet he knew. He knew what they were. That's really why they were so angry at him. After looking at them angrily, and you can see why he would be angry, he said to this man, come and stand in the midst. And so he came and stood in the midst. And he said, stretch out your hand. And I've often thought of the act of faith that must have been in that man. He stretched out his hand. And when he stretched out his hand, it was immediately healed. He stretched out his hand, and it was immediately healed by Jesus. There are consciences that are withered because we've done things we ought not to have done that need to be stretched out today so that we won't lie and cheat and hurt other people again. This is what Jesus was trying to teach these people that he had come to do, was not to destroy the law, but to fulfill the law, to complete it. It was like a circle, but not a completed circle. And he was going to complete the circle. He was going to show to them through the Beatitudes that not only were you not to kill somebody, but that you were not to hate anyone. That not only were you not to technically and physically commit adultery with someone, but that you were not to think lustful thoughts. These are tremendous revolutionary things in the permissive, hedonistic society that we live in today where so few people are concerned or care at all about anyone except number one. I was looking for a quotation from, uh, there's a Broadway musical called Annie that's uh, based on the Orphan Annie comic strip. 
And of course, Daddy Warbucks is a, a very rich person. And I copied these lines out of someone who had been to see it. One of the best lines in the whole musical is when Daddy Warbucks, who is a billionaire, the richest man I ever saw on Broadway, says to Annie, You know, Annie, on my way up to the top, I clawed and stepped on an awful lot of people. But my philosophy, Annie, is this, that if you don't plan on coming back down, it doesn't matter much what you do to people on the way up. And what hurt the man was that the, con that the people in the theater applauded. They laughed. That's great. Look out for number one. Nothing could be more contrary to the Christian faith than that sort of horrible attitude. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching here when he looks at these people angrily because of their minute, detailed keeping of the law and their oral tradition, but their lack of mercy. And they were filled with rage when he healed that man. They didn't shout, hallelujah, praise God, look, this man is healed. His family will be so happy. But it says they were filled with rage and dis discussed together what they might do to Jesus. And then just after this, in Luke's account, he gives his version of the Beatitudes. Now, we read them a moment ago from Matthew. Listen to how Luke puts them. And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and heap insults upon you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. And then comes something that's unusual and special to Luke. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you, who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the false prophets. These are words from Jesus. Now when a person takes Jesus seriously, he realizes how far we all come short of living up to this. And that has to bring us humbly to the cross of Jesus where we can be forgiven. There is a famous quotation by Pascal, who was a French physicist in the 16th century. And I'll try to get it put in the bulletin for you next Sunday so you'll have it. It led partially to the, was one of those things that God used circumstantially to lead Malcolm Muggridge, the famous British television and 
literary satirist to become a Christian. This is what Pascal wrote. It is good to be weary and worn out in the vain pursuit of the true good so that you may open your arms to the Redeemer. In other words, when you've come through these beatitudes and you've come through these demands of Jesus and you see you've fallen short and you're worn out, you come to the arms of the Redeemer, said Pascal. And this is what happened to Malcolm Muggridge. Malcolm Muggridge was an atheist. He was an irascible, cranky, cynical person. He was an editor for the Manchester Guardian and then an editor for Punch magazine for many years. He was an avid Marxist at one time and he went out to India because he thought India would be the country that could use Marxism better than any other country and he went to a particular part of India where Marxism he thought would thrive and there he ran into Mother Teresa, the same Mother Teresa who won the Nobel Prize this past year. And when he saw her Sisters of Charity caring for the people who were incurable and dying on the streets of Calcutta, Malcolm Muggridge began to wonder if there might not be something to the Christian gospel after all. And then after studying Tolstoy, and then after doing a series of programs for the BBC, which required him to go to the Holy Land, and after having taken the Gospel of Luke as the record that he would read, he said that as he walked on the road to Emmaus, that he could have sworn that Jesus was walking with him. That when he had been in Russia and he expected to see people dedicated to linen, that he had gone into a little church on Sunday, wondering if the people had lost all of their faith in God and in Jesus Christ, and instead they celebrated the risen Christ, the living Christ, and he knew that linen was defeated, and that he himself was defeated, and that he had to surrender his own life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And all the years I've known him, I've only asked Dr. Graham to introduce me to two people. One was Malcolm Muggridge, and the other one was Johnny Cash. <laughs> two very different people, but two who came by different roads to Jesus Christ. And you can come to Christ, too, today. And he can take what's withered in your life and tell you to stretch it right now forth. That his power is here. That virtue goes out of him to heal. And by his stripes, 
you can be healed. By his cross, you can be saved from your sin. The bitter hatred, which has cut you off from other people. Jay Kessler was so beautiful the other night in what he said about people who were afraid to give and receive love comfort. The barriers can come down, and you can know the love of Jesus. Let's bow in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we think with Pascal how tremendous a claim you make upon our lives. And when we see how noble and powerful and exalted a claim you make upon us, we tremble. And yet we want, as the old spiritual says, to be a Christian in our hearts and in our minds and with our bodies day by day. We want to live for Jesus. And we pray that you will speak to us so that we will. For any person here today who needs to stretch forth his or her hand, help them to sense the healing power of the risen Christ and to know the joy of forgiveness and the restoration that the love of Jesus brings. We ask it for his sake. Amen.